Okay, good morning. I'm going to go ahead and get started. This is part two of a two-part session that I was asked to do on kind of um, health and decline in West Coast Churches of Christ. We had standing room only for the health part yesterday. We have a small crowd today for decline. I think it's because I think it's because we know the story too well, and we don't want to hear anybody else tell us about it. So, uh, uh, but obviously there are people who are listening in on the recording, and uh, we will during this session today. I have a little introductory uh, video vignette that I put together just to set the stage for what we're thinking about today, and um, then we have um, some readings, some reflections on uh, one prominent. Uh, Church of Christ leader in California in the late 60s, early 70s. And then uh, we'll uh, think together about some things. I have also some video interviews that I've recorded and pieced together uh, for us to be able to listen to. And then we'll all close just kind of with some, some thoughts and some guidance and all. So I've actually put in a lot of work for this session. Um, and if it benefits a couple people, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased about that. So thank you for joining us here today think about uh, decline and the power of untold stories. So we'll begin with this little clip. I need to for the 1960s and 70s. 60s and 70s, as you well know, was a time of great tension and upheaval in our country, especially with regard to race relations. Unless the previous decades and centuries were a little better in terms of quality race relations in the country. But at least in the 60s with the Voting Rights Act and school desegregation, great movement toward at least some greater sense of equity and justice. But there was also the revolt of seven whites against what they viewed as Lyndon Johnson's betrayal and the movement toward the Republican Party that had embraced Richard Nixon and an anti-civil rights type of platform. This era and the things that were happening then, Malcolm Gladwell, from whom I have stolen the title of this session and yesterday's session, Revisionist History, he has in his podcast, Revisionist History, he has one episode titled The Hug Heard Round the World, which describes Sammy Davis Jr and focuses on his paradoxical relationship with Richard Nixon, of all people. And no scrap better than Malcolm himself. And so, to set the stage, I want us to hear Malcolm's voice as he's setting the picture of what's happening in the late 60s and early 70s. I am opposed to busing for the purpose of achieving racial balance in our schools. I have spoken out against busing scores of times over many years. Richard Nixon was, in 1972, the leading practitioner of what was known as the Southern Strategy, the attempt to use racist appeals to win over Southern white voters to the Republican Party. He nominated two Southerners to the Supreme Court, men who were such committed segregationists and so deeply unqualified that the Senate wouldn't confirm them. In the privacy of the Oval Office, Nixon referred to black people as niggers and jigaboos. He did his best to delay the integration of American public schools. He once complained to one of his aides that the anti-poverty programs established by his predecessors were a waste of money because African Americans were genetically inferior. It was just four years since Martin Luther King Jr. was shot in Memphis, 
and the president seemed bent on reversing everything the civil rights movement had fought for. Black people in 1972 did not like Richard Nixon. That is, except for one of the most famous black men in the country, Sammy Davis Jr., who sat in the Nixon family box, performed at the Nixon coronation, and who crossed the stage and wrapped one of the most famously chilly and awkward of all presidents in a joyful, excited, loving hug. Let me read to you Will Haygood's description of that moment in his biography of Sammy Davis Jr. The public had rarely seen Nixon in such an embrace, even with his own wife. And Nixon, letting loose with a slow, widening grin, towering over Davis, wrapping his arms across his own chest so awkwardly and yet tenderly like some flushed teenage kid, and all those white delegates and all those Nixon placards, and Davis leaning on the president's shoulder as if Nixon were kin. Nixon and Sammy in full embrace. When people remember Sammy Davis Jr., that's what they think of, the photograph of that moment. Sammy never got over it. Um, so what I want in thinking as we come together over this topic of the power of untold stories through the lens of race relations on the West Coast. Um, to think of Sammy Davis Jr. as a, as a, a, a great um, way of understanding the, the complexity and the, the somewhat irony of people and our stories. And, and, and so we're going to think today about a couple of things. And what, what I want to say very clearly as I start this is that I'm not attempting to make anyone look bad than, or at least worse than they make themselves look. That's not my intention. There are, there's a human tendency that we have, I think, to create categories. He's a good person. He's a bad person. We say she's good, she's bad. We want to separate these categories and we forget that people are actually complex that there's good and bad in all of us. And that sometimes certain eras label one thing as worse than others. And certainly we're in an era today when there are certain things that are, you know, from the past really looked at as, as, as very poor reflections of people. But in their day and time, they weren't quite as poor reflection of a person as they might seem to us today. So, I, but, I, but I think we have to tell the truth. Elie Wiesel, the famous Jewish Nobel Prize winner, who survived the Holocaust, whose book Night, if you've never read it, uh, certainly you should, which describes his experience in, in Auschwitz. And he said, in a visit to his native Romania, his village in Romania was mostly Jewish, and what's the dirty secret of World War II and the Nazis is that many of the local folks aligned themselves with the Nazis to help exterminate the Jews. And so Romanians have a dark past of collaborating with the Nazis, just like Slovaks and Poles and Dutch and French. There's a dark history of collaboration. And so when he went back to the opening of a museum in his native village in Romania, back in, I think, 2002, 
he said to the president of Romania, and Romania was struggling with being truthful about its past. He said, do not turn your back on the past. Integrate it into your life and you will flourish. Forget it and you are doomed. So it's my belief that we have to tell the truth, not so much to shame people from the past, but for our own flourishing. That if we fail to tell the truth about the past, we doom ourselves. And that is the great irony, perhaps, of the failure to tell the truth. Remember, remember Biff and Death of a Salesman at the end of the play he said, we never told the truth for 10 minutes in this house. And I know we live sometimes in a world where <coughs> truth-telling about ourselves is the last thing people want to do. And we live in churches where there is not a hunger to tell the truth. But telling the truth is so crucial to our own well-being. Eve Ensler, who is uh, famous for a number of things, but uh, she is uh, a deep ad or strong advocate for women's rights, and she has done a lot of work, say, for instance, in the Congo, of women who were sexually abused by the soldiers, the rebel soldiers, other places. But she talks about her own story. She says that you know, when she sat finally with her mother and named the specific sexual and violence that her father had perpetrated on her as a child, that was an impossible moment. She says it was the naming, the saying of what had actually happened to my mom, telling her, that lifted my 20-year depression. By remaining silent, I had muted my experience, denied it, pushed it down. This had flattened my entire life. I believe it was this moment of naming that allowed both my mother and I to eventually face our deepest demons and deceptions and become free. Now, um, in setting this, uh, this topic up, I know this is not a sexy or popular topic. That's, the attendance, I think, shows that. You guys are fantastic. Thank you for being here. But, but, but I'm talking about race relations, and so you would think that, you know, wow, you know, our, our, our brothers, people of color, would show up for this kind of thing. But the truth is, let me be very honest, they already know this truth <laughs> that I'm going to share today. So, so, so uh, you know, I've talked with a lot of African-American friends and, and colleagues who have little interest probably in, in hearing about this because they already know it. Um, but we as white Christians need to tell these stories for our own sake and for just the sake of telling the truth because I think um, Martin Luther said that affliction is the best book in my library and so a lot of our brothers and sisters of color have their library stocked with great books because they've been through and go through even today the affliction of being different in our society. And we as white Christians have sometimes avoided such thoughts because we don't have to think these things. And the result is we haven't gone through the affliction of struggling. And I think we're in a day and time in our churches where we need to finally embrace the fact that we're struggling. Let's embrace the truth and, and embrace the affliction, and maybe God will do something good with this, because uh, certainly in the Ten Commandments, we have the words, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And I think we're in a day and time when uh, we have hurt ourselves and our neighbors by not being truthful. So, so let, let me move now to uh, um, what I'm gonna do to be able to set the stage before I have a, a lengthy video interview is I want to talk, and I want to talk at great risk here, 
but carefully and cautiously about the words of one minister in California in the 1960s and 70s. And I'm not sure exactly when he retired. Um, I know he died, say, 20 or so years ago. And that is a man by the name of John Banks. If you talk to folks who knew John Banks and his ministry in Dinuba or Fresno uh, or later in San Diego, uh, people speak with great fondness of John Banks. John was a larger-than-life personality who was five foot five. <laughs> he was a short guy. He was a country and western aficionado who had a radio program that he did out of his own house. He had a studio in his own home, produced this program. And he was, as a result of that, was actually pretty well known and, and was independently, I don't know, wealthy, but at least independently well off. And had his own airplane, would fly to go do various things, would fly also to various churches to preach and speak. And, and John was just, he was a larger than life person, just like I said. But in 1969, he completed a master's degree at Fresno State in political science, in which he talked about desegregation, the problem of desegregation. And he, in this, uh, this, this paper, basically set out what I'm going to describe as an extremely racist view on how to deal with African Americans in our country. And, and I had reached out when I was made aware of this uh, document that's still on the shelves of the Cal State system today. You can find it um, at Fresno State in the stacks or online. Uh, but I, I reached out to the political science chairman today and said, are you aware that in 1969 there's a person who published an extremely racist um, master's thesis? And, and she really was very much in denial about the whole thing, even said, well, it was just basically... Uh, and then, then once I made her aware of it, she said, well, it just looks like he's just simply trying to give the Southern view and not really his own view. She didn't read it. Basically, she was blowing me off and not wanting to have to own that this was in their library. So I'm not even sure how this was accepted because as I go through this document, and I can't go through it in detail today, but the citations, um, the, the, the sources are not good scholarship today and not even in the 1960s. So I wonder how this got through. And I was talking also with a, a Church of Christ member from the Central Valley here in California who had put two and two together and knew I'd be talking about John Banks today. And he was wondering why I would do that. Well, what was my purpose? Am I trying to, to be smudged, this person? Am I trying to, to drag him down? And, uh, and I said, well, have you read his thesis? And he said, no, and I don't want to. And I said, well, it's hard for you to defend something you probably have never read. And so what I want to do very carefully is just simply share his own words and, and let you judge for yourselves whether or not 50 years ago in 1969 this was just simply something common in its times or whether we're, we're, we're and, and, and if we're being, if I'm being extra harsh today or if this was actually something that stood out as unusual even in its day and time. So let me, let me just read to you just a few uh, segments from his own writing. In, in the introduction, he says that the material presented here will be hurtful to those who believe the races are equal. First, first introductory point. Next page. To a well-meaning but sometimes poorly informed public, this writer is aware of the dangers involved in this endeavor. 
labels of racist, bigot, and fascist label painters will be used against me. If, they are painted, if these are painted upon the writer, he considers it a small price to pay for the hope he entertains that the present work will, will check three decades of distortion. And then, um, again, also in the introduction, he said that this final chapter, while he's trying to speak for the, for the South, the final chapter is the investigator's own idea. I have no way of knowing if Southern Christians or Southerners would have any inclination to support my views. So make it clear that he is sharing his own thoughts and perspectives. I do want to get just in a moment here some, just your own feedback if I could. So I want to open it up here in just a couple of minutes. But let me skip way ahead because certainly he's trying to put together a lot of research, which I would say mostly is the same kind of research you would read in the 17th and 18th centuries that are supporting slavery. Um, so it's fascinating that this was resurfacing in, in uh, certainly in his writings. But page 91, he said, but even though better education does increase to a small degree the Negro's performance, the South is quick to point out that animals improve their performance with training, but only up to the limits of their innate capacity. So he says that this investigator has been a careful student of the race problem for over 20 years and has found no valid evidence to support the assertion that the differences between blacks and whites are environmental. In other words, he's making the argument that blacks and whites are biologically different. The blacks are inferior. Page 94. Um, he said that um, the men who believe in the intellectual ability of blacks and whites, who believe in the equal intellectual ability of blacks and whites, have been reluctant to conduct studies. He goes on to suggest they do so because they may know on the inside that they do not have equal intellectual ability. Page 125. Said it would be difficult to disprove the theory that Negroids came from, um, from Ham, the son of Noah. So in his, in his biblical chapter, he has a little section on religious roots of racism. He talks about Jesus, he talks about Noah's son Ham as proof that even in biblical times they understood that the races were different. The fact that Jesus said, don't go to the Gentiles, he takes as proof that that the Bible endorses a different approach toward different races. Page 128. He makes it clear that a more meaningful and pertinent question, of, rather than can, can we be equal, that a more meaningful and pertinent question might be, can I love my brother while concealing from him certain facts which prevent him from being my intellectual equal? When he strives for equality and cannot attain it, do I love him by soothing his frustrations with increased concealment? So what I find fascinating is that he is saying the exact thing that I'm saying today. <laughs> He's saying we have to be truth tellers. And to be truth tellers means that we need to not give our black brethren the mistaken impression that they can somehow be equal. 
So I've just read the, the kind of the, his argumentation coming up to his closing chapter, which again, in the introduction, he says, is his own. And in the closing chapter, he puts forward four proposals for how to deal with the problem of desegregation, given all this, quote-unquote, evidence that he has put forward. So in the final chapter, he, puts, he says there are four proposals for how to deal with the problem of desegregation. The first is just to continue as is. The second is to resegregate, in other words, to go back to segregation. The third is to push even harder toward assimilation, put more money, more effort in assimilating. And the third, and this is the proposal that he himself uh, says is the most plausible, and he puts forward as, as his, closing, um, his closing argument, is to relocate all of the blacks to the Amazon basin. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, so his, his argumentation goes like this, page 157. First, the, he, he describes the fact that he knows a number of college students. He actually taught the college class at the church where I am now today. He taught the college class in the late 1960s. And he says, in discussing with college students, he says that they will tell me that they know Negroes, using the term, that are smart. And so his response to that is, the average co Negro college student from, with whom they are familiar is from the upper intellectual brackets of Negroes as a whole. And in addition to this, many of these Negro college students have varying degrees of white genetic features, probably due to interracial marriage in their ancestry. So he's not willing to you know, admit that blacks might be smart enough to go to college. Page 159, he says that any dog breeder will tell you that there is a vast difference between breeding dogs that are different, like poodles and bulldogs. And this is, again, his argumentation for why these don't go together. And so in page, the final pages of his, his proposal, his thesis, he says that if we just spent a tenth of the time and cost and money on trying to convince blacks and the country to relocate all of the African Americans to Brazil in the Amazon basin, and we, we, could, uh, we could ably compensate the Brazilians, he said, we could compensate the blacks who relocate there, that if we did this, then we would save lots of money in our country because the social programs are a waste of time and money, he says. So this is his proposal, and um, and, and when I've talked to people who knew him in his ministry, and I asked them, I said, would you be surprised that he, shared, that he had these kinds of thoughts? Now they say, no, they're not surprised. They say he never talked about these things from the pulpit, but yet they do. That he had very strong anti, um, or at least racist views uh, toward African Americans. And so I, I uh, did some in-depth interviews with the three individuals that I deeply respect, and then after that I'm going to ask if you have any kind of thoughts or feedback. Um, three individuals that I respect, uh, first of all, Dr. Richard Hughes at Lipscomb University, uh, whose uh, book, uh, Myths America Lives By, and he'll, he'll describe a little bit about that book, is an important book in understanding this. Uh, second is Dr. Jerry Taylor, who's doing the keynote tonight, 
and, and Jerry is at Abilene Christian University, uh, African-American preacher and, and now teacher of preachers at Abilene Christian. And he's also the head of the Carl Spain Center for Racial Studies or whatever the, the title of it is. And then the third one is Dr. John York at Lipscomb University, professor of New Testament, who grew up on the West Coast and who worked alongside individuals like John Banks and others. And his dad worked, as he mentioned, will mention, worked under John Banks. So if you would listen to this uh, recorded interview. Jason is uncommon, common in one sense, but perhaps a little, a little extreme. His views may have been sort of on the extreme end, Sorry. and yet common in, in another sense. I, I was thinking, I, I taught a class just a few minutes ago when we were talking about uh, this whole issue of race in the Churches of Christ. just happens to be this is the week we're dealing with this, so the Course in Restoration History. And I was reading uh, in this good book called Revival of the Ancient Faith, <laughs> uh, where it says that James Allen, editor of the Gospel Advocate, this would have been early in the 20th century, claimed that many of the preachers in Churches of Christ were members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, of course, by the time he gets to the 1960s, you know, our members are not in the, in the Ku Klux Klan, obviously, and that's something we, we've grown way beyond that. Um, I would say it would probably have been common among his peers at that time. Uh, otherwise, he would not have felt uh, that it was okay to even put such thoughts in print uh, if he did not think that the environment uh, at that time was conducive for that kind of expression. All of, the, all of the things that had to do with race would have been done more, much more on the side than anything overtly said. The only thing overtly that I ever heard said, how got off on being unable to yoke and talking about interracial relationships. And he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that this is what Paul was talking about in uh, 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, even uh, as recent as the late 60s and early 70s moments of the 80s, Churches that that kind of um, less than status was was I, I think probably fairly pervasive. I don't remember ever being taught it in any kind of formal way. I just I just remember thinking that we didn't have anything in common with these people. But the interesting thing to me about, about the 60s, the period you're asking about, and I think it's not just the West Coast, but it's, it's churches everywhere. Uh, our churches, for the most part, simply ignored the freedom movement, the civil rights movement, just didn't pay any attention to it. It just was not an issue. 
Uh, I was a student at Harding College, 61 to 65, and uh, I can remember, Jason, that I, mean, I didn't discover the Civil Rights Movement until I got to the University of Iowa in 1967 and discovered what I missed. I, and yet, all these events were taking place within what, two to three hundred miles before I was going to school. I don't blame my professors, not in the least. I blame me. I, it was just, we just didn't pay any attention to it. It wasn't our issue. It wasn't our problem. Uh, John had very specific views about Jews about who a real Jew is and isn't based on research he thought he'd done, um, about who was really in Israel and who wasn't in Israel. And, and, and so there were all kinds of, of stereotype groups and, um, and othering perspectives that were very much a part of the conversation. When he was in a room, he filled up the space and that meant his ideas filled up the space. And so whether or not he said something from the pulpit. I think that had little to do with whether or not those views were being disseminated from him in the larger kind of uh, conversational settings that he would have been in. From, from my experience, uh, you know, my dad encountered John Banks in 1978. Um, that's when he moved there to work with John. Or excuse me, that's not true. 74 is when he moved to uh, San Diego. He worked there for four years before moving back in 78 to Roseburg. And certainly, I would, my sister and I would agree on this, that my father came away from the years with him far more bigoted in his outlook on almost any group of people than before he started. So I, to, to me, you don't get off the hook because you never said this out loud in the pulpit when in all your relationships otherwise, that was what people came to think. If we don't own it, we can't do any better. And and the, here's here's the here's the nub of the problem. And I, I'm going to use a word. I'm going to use a term now, Jason, that I'm very much aware most white people and most white Christians uh, are not comfortable with using. But the reason I'm going to use it is because most black people and most black Christians are very comfortable with using it, and it means something to them. And the term is white supremacy. And here's the reason I bring that term up is this. Uh, black people, what I've discovered over the last several years working on this book that has that phrase in the title, is that most black people, that phrase is part of their working vocabulary. It, 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 it's a useful way to describe what black life means in the United States. And, and for that reason alone, we need to, instead of rejecting the term and saying, you know, well, that's too threatening. I, you know, I don't want to admit to that. I, you know, I don't want to own that. You know, it's, it's too indicting, too threatening. We need to ask the question, what do they mean by it? Why, why would black people so consistently want to use that kind of language why would even white Christians want to use that kind of language to describe what, is, 
what's going on here is they're describing something they see very clearly and we don't. Um, I think we need to own it because we are the current owners of it. We have inherited what they uh, bequeathed to us um, and we have received it spiritually. So it is in our DNA. It is in our genetic makeup. Uh, it is as common to us as the air that we commonly breathe. And so what, is, what seems to be a thing of the past is actually a living, vibrant thing of the present. That's, you know, I think for white people to say that's not my problem is exactly what black people mean when they use the phrase white privilege. It's, I mean, we're, we are sufficiently privileged, it doesn't have to be our problem. I don't have to think about these things. For me, it's been critical to own it. I have to own all of the pieces of that that come with the status of life that I got to live free of charge compared to the status of life which was taken to them taken from them and continues to be taken from them by the circumstances in which they've continued to have to live. And they have taken on a different form, a different uh, sophisticated expression, uh, but it is as live today, if not livelier and more believable today, because it is spiritualized in the hearts and minds, uh, which makes it even more easy to think that we no longer this because uh, we have learned how to not give uh, physical expressions to it where people can actually see it but still existing in the hearts and minds and spirits. If we don't come to terms with where we've been and come to terms with really be honest about where we are today, how will we ever do better? Because our assumption is we're in a... So in 2012, one of my former students at Pepperdine, uh, who now teaches at Pepperdine, Raymond Carr, Raymond invited me to be on a panel discussion around James Cone's recent book, Across the Lynching Tree. And the book had just come out, it was 2012, at the National Meeting of the American Catholic Religion. So as part of my remarks, I talked about uh, the myths. You know, I wrote a book some years ago called Myths America Lives By, and I talked about those myths and how they shaped me when I was a child growing up in West Texas. I mean, no one taught them to me. I just absorbed them by osmosis, really. I mean, America's a chosen nation. America's a Christian nation. America, you know, always kind of we Americans tend to hold. When I got through with my little speech and I sat down at the table with the other panelists, 
This very, very distinguished African-American scholar named James Noel, they passed away just a few months ago. Noel leans over to me and he says, Professor, you left out the most important of all the American myths. And I was just stunned. I mean, I've I taught this stuff for years. I've written a book on it. I said, what did I leave out? He said, Professor, you left out the myth of white supremacy. And I'm going to tell you, I was 69 years old when Noel said that to me. And I had thought about race. I, you know, I am very much anti-racist, as you are. I had thought about this stuff. It never once occurred to me that white supremacy was an important myth in the American uh, way of thinking about ourselves, much less the most important. It never occurred to me. So when he said it, my first reaction was resistance. And I began to think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more and the more I began to talk with black people and black friends and black church members about this very idea, what I began to see is white supremacy is really, it's the air we breathe. Uh, they still will be pulled over more than I will. It's all kinds of looks and uh, fears and anxieties I'm never going to face. People are never going to look at me and instantly have fear. They're going to be looked at by white people who instantly have fear. There's nothing about that that's equitable. There's nothing about that that's gone away. Sure, we come a long way from the 1960s. You know, we're not stuck in that old, you know, racist, uh, you know, blatantly racist world that was there with King, led the civil rights movement. We've come a long way. But most of us in the church and in the larger society, if we're white, we're still embedded in a certain set of attitudes and assumptions that we make. Black people perceive that very clearly. They see it. We don't. And the reason we don't is we don't have to think about it. Right. It's just not my issue. Why would I think about it? Uh, someone says, white privilege? What do you mean? I work hard for what I get. Well, and then you talk to black parents. Every black parent I know has told me that when they have young men growing up in their home, you know, young boys, and they become they old enough to drive, black parents sit their kids down and say, if you're stopped, here's what you must do. Here's what you must not do. My parents never said that to me. Who are your parents never said that to you? You see, black people have to deal with it. We don't. We don't have to think about it. Yeah, my, my sense about that is uh, you, I, I personally have had to tell the truth about myself. I've had to tell the truth about white privilege. I've had to tell the truth about the systemic uh, circumstances out of which my life has been lived one way and, and the people of, of color have had to live out a completely different reality. And the way in which then, whether it's John Bates contributing directly to that by pulling out these perspectives that you would have thought by 1969 had gone away instead of being somehow exacerbated by him. Um, until we can tell the truth, you can't you can't keep wishing this away. Mm -hmm. Systemically, there's nothing that's passive. You know, I think you were there uh, last year at, at our preaching workshop, uh, and, and 
And I, I thought one of the startling moments in all that was Jerry Taylor uh, finally telling the truth, right? Which I think is the reality for hosts of people of color. And that is uh, every day they still live in a very oppressed world. I think it, it has to do with the kind of religion that white people have bought into, the, uh, the overlay of a Christian veneer, which means that uh, Christianity is used as a, a badge of external respectability that uh, we extend each other in each other's eyes as being good person. That's the first thing that we hear if anybody is even uh, coming near being accused of racism and say, oh no, that's a good person. Well, that's what we've been indoctrinated with, especially those of us who have uh, had a healthy dosage of sectarianism, uh, especially in our fellowship of the Church of Christ, uh, carrying the burden of not only believing that we're the only but proving to everybody else that we're the only one right, which means that we're, we're the best of God's children. On that fact, we're the only one that are God's children. And so if anybody implies that we're not good, that we're not righteous, that we're not holy, that flies in the face of everything that we've been conditioned to view ourselves being uh, through the names of our religion. only way to arrest that, that guilt feeling uh, is to return to the ground of our being, which is God. And God, through his redemptive love, is able to help us to address whatever brokenness and evil uh, that exists in the human heart. He addresses that and can arrest that and bring about a new humanity from the inside out. die with its flawed legacy. That's my sense of what's happening in Churches of Christ right now. It's my sense of what's happening with white Christianity in America right now. Uh, the more we want to live in denial of all of that, the more we are going to suffer the consequences of, of that. I think the more you, whether it's about racism or it's about anything else that you have going on, that's, that's as the Catholic Church how sexual sin is working. Let's ask the Baptists how sexual sin is working for them right now. Let's ask our own tribe how sexual sin is working for us, where we think the best way to, to deal with it is not to tell anybody. We still think that if, if, if we keep it buried, that's going to make for health. We, we know our physical bodies don't work that way. The hopeful side of any truth-telling is you at least have the chance for resurrection. Vocation. You know, one of the things he said he came to bring freedom to the oppressed, you know, to 
you know, the science of the blind. I mean, you know, in the synagogue where he announced his vocation, preached from the scroll of Isaiah. Well, we can never join Jesus' mission. We can never make his vocation our vocation until we try to hear what oppressed people are saying to us. That, to me, is the bottom line. If, if we don't open our ears and our hearts to really listen to what they're saying, but if we consistently dismiss them, uh, don't put that guilt trip on me. You know, and that's what we often say, don't put that guilt trip on me. Tom's answer, which is to say, uh, no, you can't be with us. You shouldn't ever be with us. In fact, we should send you to the Amazon. And you're just going, okay, which, which part of Jesus haven't you read lately? God is the answer to guilt. And once we make that unity in connection with God, he brings us face to face, not only with our sin of racism, the sin of hatred, the sin of goodness, the sin of unforgiving heart. Uh, he brings us face to face with all of the negative emotions that uh, keep us acting on the level of animals rather than beings. Okay, I have just two or three minutes for your thoughts, feedback, anything that you have heard that you'd just like to share, um, please. Okay, in the 60s and 70s, yeah. where were you? So was I. I was born in 1967 in Ohio. Okay, you're a spring chicken. Now, I lived there, but I didn't live it in the South. I'm a peer of John Miller. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Oregon. Mm. And I crossed paths with him. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up, and I think sociologically, where you grow up affects everything. And in my church, um, and in my family, my parents didn't share any prejudice. And we read about children not seeing color mm -hmm. until a certain age developmentally. And so it was very interesting for me to grow up in the Northwest and go to OC. And there's a movie called Finian's Rainbow. So I saw it my senior year in high school. And then I saw an entirely different eyes on the OC campus. Because I experienced a difference that I hadn't experienced in the Northwest. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Anybody else? Everybody, yeah. So I was born in 65 in Lubbock. Okay. When I grew up here, yeah. I moved here when I was two. Uh, my dad was a preacher. My granddad was an elder in the church. Both of my great grandfathers were preachers in the church. And, uh, and so I didn't, like this lady's comments, I didn't really see growing up sort of the overt racism. Got it. But when we would go back to Lubbock, or it's not Lubbock, to Fort Worth for family gatherings, boy, you can see it there. Yeah. But what really impressed me was in talking to my dad about issues of race, that he shared with me that his granddad, the Church of Christ preacher, actually believed that black people had half a soul. That, that was an actual belief. Interesting. And so it, it, it seems like, you know, when you try and reconcile some of these 
people and their perspectives, you have to distill it down to a notion of actual racism. Yeah. That is, that there is really some fundamental difference between black people and white people to be able to explain what otherwise you would kind of back away and say, you know, these people seem like good people, they're doing good work. Right. You know, I know a lot of situations where in our fellowship, you know, at that particular time, when if black people would come to us, rather than accept them, then we would help them plant a black church in the community. So I, I think, thank, thank you for sharing that. So can you short? Yeah, because I got quite a bit to do in 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think what I would like to say is that I think if, if you would dig deep into our own stories on the West Coast, that this kind of story is actually not so unique. You look at a book, Darren Dochuk wrote the great book from Bible Belt to Sun Belt, describing how the West Coast uh, was really um, churched by Bible Belt folks who came. And of course, there were, there were churches here before then, but, but in those years, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s, and that's when our churches grew, 50s, 60s, right? Here on the West Coast, many orchards were planted in those, in those times. And the preachers who were coming to fill the pulpits were from where often? They were often from Oklahoma and Texas and Missouri and Arkansas. And, and, and so I would say that, you know, even though we may not have been exposed to these things in certain places, that the thinking was still there. And I think that what, what is a challenge now for us in my church, because John Banks was, a preacher, was the first preacher at the church where I am now. And how do I tell that story in a church where many of the original founding members view him as almost like a, uh, an amazing, uh, infallible individual? And I don't want to try to like say he's a, he's a horrible person. That's the wrong categories to say good or bad, right? I, want, I just want to tell the truth, say, look, he had some really messed up views. That's just true. And we may have been affected by some of those things. So I think what's important for white Christians to do is to come to terms with the, the, the racial divide. Uh, Christina Cleveland, whose book, Disunity in Christ, is really helpful. But in some of her presentations, um, I know, Mika, you've heard of her. You've gotten to spend quite a bit of time listening to her. She talks about what happens when white folks encounter the racial divide. I'll just list just real quickly what she says. The five, I think it's wrote five, but I think there's actually six stages. Six stages of racial encounter for, for whites. Now, the first thing is that when we really encounter that there is a divide, I think most of us are blissfully ignorant. But when most of us finally contact and come into encounter with the fact that there is a divide, that we are, you know, kind of shocked out of our of our ignorance. Second thing that most of us white Christians feel is some kind of disintegration. We we tend to feel guilt over it. We personally and, and, and I've I've been in stages just in the last few years where I finally kind of come to terms with this. And and I'm fifty one years old. So just coming to terms with this at my age and and I've acted in a couple of three years ago. I remember doing some things in my church trying to get people to talk about this. I was really acting out of my disintegration, which is not very helpful because it, people feel like you're kind of shoving it down their throat or trying to, and, and, and that's not 
that's not the ideal place. You even hear Jerry Taylor talking about guilt's not a good thing for us. We need to kind of come to the feet of God instead. But guilt is a helpful part of the process, uh, Christina Cleveland would say. A third, the, many times what happens is after this, and these don't all happen for everyone and not always in the same order, but that many times after disintegration, a white person will fall back into the white enclave. That they've encountered the divide, they've felt some guilt over it, but they don't know what to do with it. So they tend to go back to the white church, tend to go back to the white neighborhood. They just simply kind of pull back, maybe from exhaustion, maybe from overload. It's just hard to process. But then what happens for, for someone who per persists, because a lot of times people will end here. They will have gotten this far and they'll just basically pull back and never really deal with the fact that there is a divide in our country. And the fourth thing, and in our churches, I would say. And the fourth thing comes when, when you finally begin to step out on your own and ask questions. You begin to explore. You start to, to seek the truth. <laughs> and this is what she calls an unlearning phase. And, and then you move toward immersion where you really deeply now are, are able to absorb the information because a lot of times we are like concrete walls and we're throwing Velcro balls against the concrete walls. You may have the information, but you're not receptive to it. So you have to get yourself receptive. And then finally now is when you can sit and talk and listen and hear stories and realize, wow, um, I, I have a lot to learn. Because the goal is, is not actually to like become colorless. The goal is to realize who we are and to be okay with that. I'm white. It's just the, the way I am. I mean, and so I've got to come to the place where I'm okay with my whiteness and understand what it means to be white. That I don't need to live forever in guilt, but I do need to know who I am. I remember I was at a presentation with Christina Cleveland and one person in the audience asked her, as a white person said, Christina, how can I have more black friends? And Christina said, um, thank you for that question, but that's really not my problem. It's really not black people's problem. What most black people want is not more white friends. If they want something from you, it's to be you with your friends. Yeah. Come to terms with these things. Deal with them. Help your friends come to terms with these things. But don't try to ask us to fix your problems. What's WS? Uh, white supremacy, sorry. Thank you for saying that. I meant to say that freedom from white supremacy. That um, we need to kind of come to terms with who we are. And that's all I'm really trying to do in this session is say all of us in our heritage probably have some pretty uncomfortable pieces when it comes to the history of white supremacy, of racism in our country in our churches as well. And I think the most healthy and helpful thing to do is to be honest about that. Again, Ellie Bissell, his comment um, that I, and I read at the very beginning of the class, his statement to the Romanian president, do not turn your back on the past. Integrate it into your life and you will flourish. Forget it and you are doomed. And I think that's the reality for all of us as Christians too, is to be honest, that we are sinners in need of a savior. <laughs> that, that should be the story that all of us experience. And I love the story from uh, Flannery O'Connor, who in her story called Revelation, she describes Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin is a 
devout Christian woman, older woman, living in the South. And the story, a lot of the story deals with her sitting in a doctor's waiting room. And while she's in the waiting room, she's reflecting about how thankful she is for all the things in her life. She's thankful that, that she is not like other people who are just messed up. <laughs> and in horror, she begins to think to herself, what if, what if Jesus had said, all right, you can be white trash, or you can be a nigger, I'm quoting, or you can be ugly. And at this very moment of the story, a girl who's in the waiting room loses her mind and comes up to her and starts screaming at her and tells her, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And this moment of revelation so deeply unsettles Mrs. Turpin that she can't help stop but being disturbed by it. All day long she's thinking about, how could this person call me a hog? And that night, as she's back on her farm, as she's feeding her pigs in the, in, in the pig pen, she's, she's speaking angrily to God. How am I a hog? How am I like them? And in the final surge of fury, she shook and roared, Who do you think you are? In these last words, she's now ready for the final revelation of the story. Because there in the corner, the pigs settled together around the old sow. And finally, she lifted her head from the hog pen. And she saw a sight of purple in the sky. And this is what Flannery O'Connor writes. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swing bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives. Bands of black niggers in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were marching on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. All of us are in need of salvation. We should be truthful about who we are. I love the story of George Wallace, former governor of Alabama, who ordered his police officers to use all means necessary to stop protesters marching from Selma to Montgomery. At the end of his life, he repented of his racist ways and his actions, and I don't know, was it entirely genuine? It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, we all have things in our past of which we are not proud. Who would want their browsing history open for the whole world to understand? Uh, you know, all of us have things that we wish others wouldn't know about. And we don't need to parade everything out into the open, but there are things that should be told. 
And this is one of the stories that I think we should be truthful about. So I thank you very much for your attention, for being here, and for sharing this little time together. Thank you.